Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number four, The Aftermath. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, we're going to take topics relevant to today's gun owners and tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers, the perspective of on-duty and off-duty law enforcement officers. So we give you all the angles of discussion. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Mountain Man Medical is focused on two principles first we build med kits and trauma kits that consist of name brand proven and tested components second make them the most affordable of any company on the market also brought to you by range tech bluetooth shot timers if you're not training with a shot timer you should be and one of the best ones i've found is the range tech Every serious shooter should have a shot timer to measure speed along with accuracy on the range. The new Range Tech Bluetooth timer is the most affordable high-tech and most feature-rich timer on the market. And for those of you like me, 25 bucks cheaper than any of the competitors. And their software app, unbelievable. Very powerful tool. If you're not training with a timer, you should be. And as always, the honorary sponsor of the show, EDC Belt Company. The most functional, comfortable concealed carry belt on the market in the industry hands down i don't just say that because i co-founded the company and co-owned it i say it because i believe it and i wear one every day all right the aftermath today i am joined by two guests co-host haney mcmood we'll bring him in in just a minute and i have the distinct privilege and honor of interviewing somebody that i know probably as well as anybody in my life but he has probably the most rich and unique resume uh, of anybody in law enforcement that I've ever met. And he's also my dad. So today we're going to be joined by Gary Eastridge from CCW Safe and Firearms Trainers Association. He wears two hats there. We're going to talk about a presentation that he does called the Aftermath. I got invited to this seminar one day and on a whim, I just went. I said, I'll go watch my old man talk about uh, the aftermath of shooting. And not only did I find it incredibly informative, it showed me there's a, there's a lot of similarities in uh, police shootings and self-defense shootings. Lethal force is lethal force, right? But it also showed me the process is considerably more complex depending on whether it's a law enforcement officer or a concealed carrier. Although there's overlapping similarities and law enforcement officers, because of the nature of the job, are afforded a few different avenues of uh, defense and such. So we're going to peel back the layers and uh, I'm going to read you a quick, a quick little bio on uh, Gary Eastridge here. 79 to 2000, he was with the Oklahoma City Police Department. He was in their patrol for about 11 years tactical unit or SWAT for about six years, investigations for 10 years, and he worked narcotics, burglary, and homicide. So uh, when I was growing up, we had some interesting family dinners. I'll just put it that way. 2000, 2001, while I was off serving in the army, uh, he was deployed overseas at the United Nations mission as a regional murder squad investigator. He also owned his own PI company, GEI, Gary Eastridge Investigations, in that, he did contracts with the U.S. Postal Service, New Orleans Hornets, when they were displaced from New Orleans to Oklahoma City. And probably the most 
closely that he and I worked together in the law enforcement realm was 2007 to 17. He was the chief investigator for the Oklahoma County DA's office. And there he was involved in several high profile cases. And oddly enough, I was too. So it was kind of cool to, you know, not many people get to say they worked a shooting with their dad. Kind of a luxury that we we enjoyed. Uh, Also caused a lot of stress at times. There again, really interesting background. In October of 79, he was involved in a defensive shooting while on duty. And we're going to probably have to go into a second episode to peel into that one. But let's bring in our guest now for the aftermath. All right, let's kick off episode four aftermath with our co-host as usual. And Mr. Co-host, I will let you introduce our, our distinguished guest today. You ready, Henny? I'm ready. I, I get to do the introduction. Sure, why not? I already did the I already did the re, the resume before you guys jumped on. So roll with it. Okay. Well, if you've done the resume, then I, I will do the uh, without further ado. So our our uh, conversation this evening is with uh, Gary Eastridge, a man of many talents and much experience. Since you've already talked about his uh, his credentials and resume and so on. Uh, just to keep it real brief, um, I've known Gary, I don't know how many years now, but it, 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 it's well over 10 or 15, and um, he's one of the most experienced guys I know in, in our career field, in terms of uh, breadth of experience. I'll leave it at that. What we were bounced around, our focus on this one, we called it Aftermath, because I okay. attended this briefing that was put on by the guy in the room here that called Aftermath, about a 40-slide presentation. Uh, put on by him and CCW Safe that I would recommend anybody attend. I actually learned quite a bit. We want to kind of dissect the differences between a police shooting and a civilian self defense shooting. Where do you do you want to lead off with the questions, or do you want me to, or do you just want to? Oh, you can go ahead, Brian. Okay. Ahead. So, at the DA's office, you had the the experience of investigating officer involved shootings, civilian self defense shootings some of which were rather high profile. What do you see as key differences between the two, aside from just, well, this was a sworn law officer and he, in the course of business, ended up in a, in a, in a shooting. With the process broken down through the investigation and such, where do you feel like they deviate the most? I would say the biggest deviation would be in the peer support or in the uh, just the support mechanisms that are available to law enforcement are not automatically put into place for a civilian shooting. Most agencies have a peer support team. If they're of any significant size, they have a, uh, a union or a representation element. They have defined protocols as far as where, what, when, and why. Well, what about uh, on a civilian defensive shooting? There is some protocol in place for the investigation, I presume. I mean, I have been on scene of several, but the investigation, there, there's, there's obviously a difference there. And, and if you can kind of dissect, does it become more of a, a homicide investigation? Or when those investigations come together, is it, are they, are they, do they proceed differently than they would in an officer-involved shooting? Well, technically, they should be conducted almost identically. 
However, in reality, in, in the real world, when an, when an officer is involved in a shooting, the investigators are going to know that officer. There's going to be a presumption that that officer was acting in good faith and unless the evidence indicates otherwise. When you go into a civilian shooting, you're totally at the mercy of the evidence or the uh, information that you're building during the course of that in- investigation. Handy, you got anything for that? Yeah. Um, you know, Gary, I, I, you know, what I'm hearing you say, I think stuff that, you know, Brian and I have seen bits and pieces of, but not, um, not the inner workings. And what I wanted to ask you is along those lines, is it basically a case of, or a case is not the right word. It, it is the, the, the dynamic is that, well, we know the officer is likely a known quantity. He is an officer. He's one of our officers. As opposed to if it's a non-law enforcement shooting, it sounds to me like, you know, you have to enter into it, even though they should be treated the same. Mentally speaking for the investigator, it sounds to me like you can't operate from that position. It's like, well, I don't know this guy and I don't know that guy. I think that's very accurate. Uh, in in the uh, in the case of a law enforcement shooting, many times it's it's your uh, your 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 people that you have worked with in the past. You've developed relationships with. You know they they overall. Uh, you know their overall work habits. You know that they're they're a person of good conscience and make good sound decisions. So you've got a little bit of an altered baseline. Whereas if you go out on a right. civilian shooting, it's an unknown quantity. You're, you're going on, uh, you're going on a incident that when you receive that call, you have minimal information because everything's kind of on hold until you get there with a law enforcement shooting. By the time I arrived at the scene, generally I've had a a little bit of a briefing, a little bit of an mm-hmm. idea of what happened. They were responding to a robbery call. The suspect opened fire on them, whatever the case may be. With a civilian shooting, you get the call and you arrive on the way there. You got a guy who's either living or dead, and you've got a guy who shot that person. And that's many times that's all you have. The officer involves that. It's funny that my peers that I've been involved with almost unanimously, I could hear by the tone of their voice on the radio that things were getting real, getting ready to really go south as opposed to the civilian side, which is, you know, we have no personal connection or, or work history, past history. Yeah. You, it's almost, it's like having inside information you have an idea of how that response came about. Uh, You understand when he says, I went 97 and the suspect did this or that. You understand what he's saying. A civilian, uh, many times they're not as as prepared to provide you the information you need. Whereas with that law enforcement officer, he knows what the key issues are going to be in that shooting. So a lot of that is already in hand and to the investigators before they even arrive on the scene. Well, you know, Gary, an attorney may call this a leading question, but it sounds to me like that might be something that people in the armed citizenry that are not born to do any of this 
sounds to me like they, this is an area that they need to give thought to prior to. You know, we, we always talk about the fighting side, the gunfighting side, that, you, you know, you won't you won't rise to the occasion. You'll you'll perform at the level of, of your actual competence. You're not going to become Superman. And we always give that advice for the actual doing part. But I, I'm not sure a lot of guys get advice about, you know, train hard, keep, keep your skills up, know what to do and so on. I don't think they give a lot of thought to, right, as soon as the gun smoke clears, what is it I'm supposed to do then? Absolutely. But yeah, you're spot on. Uh, as a law enforcement officer, you, you start preparing for the possibility of an armed con- confrontation in the police academy. In my personal case, my personal uh, use of force incident, shooting incident, I was five months out of the academy. So I was well-versed on everything that was going to happen. It was still tremendously stressful. However, I had had a baseline idea of what I was going to need to do, what to expect from the department, what to expect from the Fraternal Order of Police. You know, I had been through a two-week firearms training course in the academy. Like I say, my shooting was five months out of the academy. The average average concealed carrier goes into this. He makes a decision one day that, hey, I think I would like to be able to protect myself, defend myself within the rights that are afforded to me. I think I'll go get a permit. As we all know, the, the permit process in the United States is very, very basic. Generally a one-day, maybe a two-day course of instruction that involves a brush over of the self-defense laws and a, a proficiency test just sufficient enough to say that, hey, this guy's not going to shoot himself or others unintentionally. And then that's it. The average concealed carrier says, well, I've got the Second Amendment that's going to protect me. The law says that I have the right to defend myself, so therefore I shall. And they give no real thought to it uh, up until, as you said earlier, the, the gun smoke's clearing. And then yeah. you're put in that position of what the hell have I done? What's going to happen next? So what's happening next? At the end of the investigation, you're looking at, possible criminal prosecution and civil litigation on the officer-involved shooting, right? With the added layer of administrative action, which now with concealed carry permits, I think that permeates into the concealed carrier to administrative action being a state or an issuing agency going, you can never, we cleared your shooting, but you can never carry a gun in our state because we felt this area of it was reckless or that area. Criminal prosecution is always a, that's always a possibility Civil litigation being, you know, a wrongful death suit or some type of liability suit filed by the suspect or the suspect's family if they survived or if they if they were deceased at the end of the shooting, there's pretty good possibility there's going to be civil litigation. And that that's one of the big ones we see. It's just commonplace on the, the, the law enforcement side. It's almost known that within a few months of a of an officer involved shooting you're probably going to get served with paperwork that you're being sued as a law enforcement officer you you're afforded some degree of protection from that with qualified immunity and being indemnified by your agency having the blanket of protection from your agency in your city that that hired you to do said job uh, whereas on 
the civilian side, you don't, you're not afforded that same protection. Is am I incorrect or correct there? I think you're correct, with the exception of other than the qualified immunity issue, the possible ramifications are pretty well identical. Right. With law enforcement, you also have the additional layer of of policies and and protocols of your 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 department. With the the difference, the main difference to me is still the fact that. As a law enforcement officer, you are trained more so than a private carrier generally. There are obviously some exceptions. We've all got that friend that seeks training that goes to training, you know, multiple times in a year. But I could probably name them on one hand. Exactly. The average concealed carrier uh, says, hey, I know how to shoot a gun because my granddad taught me when I was 14. The big difference is still that... As an officer, you pre- you prepare for that possibility, but more importantly, you have a safety net, for lack of a better term, a support network that is there ready to support you in the event of an incident. Part of that is because as an, someone who is paid to carry a gun and enforce the laws, your chances of an armed encounter rise significantly as a private carrier you say well you know if this ever happens i'll be able to defend myself but if it does happen you have no idea what's going to happen next as a law enforcement officer first of all you have your uh, your collegial relationship with the other officers in the department the officers who have been through the incident so you've got an idea of what's going to happen you know that homicide's going to come out. You know that you're going to do a public safety walkthrough. You know that in two days after you've had two sleep cycles, you're going to have to come in for an interview. And all that time, your your representation have the opportunity to review your actions and identify identify possible pitfalls in the uh, incident, possible problem areas. As a private carrier. Me, as a homicide investigator, when before I retired, I show up and say, okay, let's go downtown and talk. And that's the extent of your prep work. If you exercise your, your right to have counsel, most shootings don't happen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They happen at yeah. odd hours. You're not able to reach your legal representation at midnight on a Friday night. So that then leads to the possibility if the evidence does not support or is not conclusive that this is more likely a self-defense incident than not, you may be taken into custody. As a law enforcement officer, it's going to become pretty apparent pretty quick whether or not there's an issue with the shooting. With a civilian, you're stuck in that dilemma of, do I go in and talk with uh, the investigators without my representation? I've interviewed hundreds of people within an hour, hour and a half of their deadly force encounter. Was that fair to them? Probably not. Would I have done it as an officer? Absolutely not. But that, that, That's a really interesting and valuable perspective there, Gary. Well, Very have, few people have that. Have you seen – I know in – you know, friends of mine that have been involved in incidents, et cetera, that some of them the night of the incident 
were given a statement. And it seems like it's only been in the past maybe eight to 10 years that this two sleep cycle thing has come to be come to bear on officer involved shootings for years I, I watched friends of mine that get in an incident if they're injured they get treated and they get taken right downtown and gun tested and all right uh, let's give your statement here's here's your fop representation here's the attorney give us your statement and then we'll follow up with with additional questions and it becomes pretty clear right away that they're <laughs> For me, with officer-involved shootings, that there was never any criminal intent to dismiss or, or dispense with from from the out the, the onset of the incident. There was you you know there was a call, there was some some incident that happened that the officer intervened in. The element of that person going there with criminal intent was ne- never had to be really dispensed with. But what, what do you think the benefits are of this this two sleep cycles? And do you think that's something that is going to maybe creep into the concealed carry world at some point. I think with education, it will. It's an evolutionary process. My shooting occurred in October of 1979, decades ago. I went straight in and did a did an interview with the homicide unit. Wasn't really afforded uh, any other option. I can tell you the information I gave homicide was not the best information based on the fact I was a 22-year-old kid who had just taken a life, had been in a life-or-death struggle, and I was literally numb at the time I did my, my interview. We have seen this evolve in law enforcement. I still remember in homicide in the late 90s, we were assisting a, uh, a couple detectives from Portland, Oregon, and at that time, they, were, they told us that they don't get to talk to their officers involved in the shooting for two days. And we were just amazed by that, that an officer would have the option not to talk to homicide for, for two days. We didn't give that option in the late 90s, which was you know just a little over 20 years ago. By the time I went to the district attorney's office in 2007, it was more mainstream that an officer was allowed some time to uh to decompress to get a sleep cycle to get over the trauma the immediate trauma of the incident with the thinking being that a good interview a day or two later is better than a bad interview an hour later and then i saw that become the norm during my time at the district attorney's office and now, as we see the scrutiny of police actions around the country, you see almost a backlash against that. Yeah. You know, Gary, if I can interrupt there for a minute, I think you make a good point about there's kind of like a, a backlash in terms of like that officers have it a lot easier. I, I think maybe in, in some ways officers do. But it appears to me that in a lot of ways, it, it, it's also a double-edged sword. For instance, when a, an armed citizen has an incident, you know, really, the, it seems to me that the only thing that matters is, is it legal or isn't it? A lot of officers, what a lot of people don't realize is officers will get, will, ha- will have a substantial issue because the agency, either rightly or wrongly, will say, well, that's not the issue. The issue is that you violated department policy. Absolutely. And, 
You know, that's uh, the big difference to me personally, and some may disagree with this. The armed citizen is responsible for himself, his self, himself, herself, and their loved ones, maybe their close friends, depending on the situation. As a law enforcement officer, you are compelled to be responsible for yourself, your public, every call you're sent on. You're, you are sent, and I hate the words t- fight and warrior and that, that mentality, but you are, you are paid to go fight other people's fight, you, to go yeah. take other people's battle. Someone's been wronged. They've been harmed. Please come take care of it. The concealed carrier doesn't have to deal with that. So that, I think, is what resulted in some of the things that, that are now in place. As a concealed carrier, you don't have that support network, so that's the downside to it. You're responsible for a lot less people as a concealed carrier. I think it's Pat Mack that says be your own uh, personal. The, the agent in charge of your own personal protection detail. There and, we go. And that's absolutely right. You, your loved ones, you take care of those closest to you. In law enforcement, you're taking care of people you've yep. never met before and will never meet again. You're only there because they need you there. So you're put in the midst of other people's fight, not your own fight. So, you know, it's, I hate to look at it as a strictly this is fair and this is unfair. They're, yeah. they're two different worlds. Two different um, worlds with, with, the, uh, with the commonality of there may or may not have been a firearm involved. But let's, Hanny, do you have anything else along those lines or do you want to? Just uh, uh, something that just occurred to me because uh, here's what I'm thinking about. Because I've seen in my career in our area, not very often, but I've seen it happen in at least five cases where uh, deadly force was used by an officer. But what very quickly happened was the agency said, you, you operated outside of policy, which I mentioned just a few minutes ago. But what goes with that is then... Their, um, the, the agency feels like that kind of indemnifies them from, from the officer's actions. In a, in a way, it's kind of like, it's like they're cutting them loose legally and, and basically saying, hey, look, yeah, what he did, we never trained him to do that. We didn't agree with that. He violated policy by doing it. I've seen that happen several times here. Several times it, in, in the long term, the officer was exonerated was rehired, got back pay, etc. And I've seen cases where they they did it went very bad. The sad the sad reality is there are several factors that can uh, play into a situation, not the least of which is political. And by political I'm not talking necessarily elections and that sort of thing, but we have seen recently a lot of actions by agencies, by prosecuting authorities, to where immediate action was taken versus allowing an investigation to be completed and then the action taken be based upon that that investigation. We all know that most prosecutors, I worked for a prosecutor for 10 years. They're elected ofi- officials. 
agencies know that they're at the whim of the city government. And a lot of times they hire people into positions of authority who are in lockstep with whatever that city or that agency's personal mission, not personal, but their their mission or their agenda may be. So what concerns me in recent times is this effort to lump all situations together and say this action resulted in, in a death and that action resulted in a death, so therefore those actions must be bad especially when that judgment is reached prior to the completion of investigation. I'm a personal believer that most self-defense shootings, even those that may ultimately have issues and may even ultimately be viewed as a criminal act, don't originate as a criminal act. Most law enforcement actions, whether good or whether bad, are not entered into with criminal intent. There are mistakes that are made that, you know, there's several, there's several levels. There's that totally justified incident where everything, the response by the concealed carrier or by the law enforcement officer are perfectly justified. Then there is that justified response with issues. There was an extra shot. There were shots after the, uh, the threat had passed in the, 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 least, the least common one is the overtly criminal act. I, right. I, I keep up with these police incidents around the country as much as one can by, by reading media reports. This is another thing I would caution any, any reader. I don't care what it is, politics, anything that goes on. Don't base your opinion on a media report. That's that's just a snippet. And unfortunately, selling advertising is a big pri- priority, a, a big motivator for that snippet to be released. But if you take and review these actions, the cases where it, it is overtly criminal are the minority. I, I, I worked in, I've been in law enforcement. I spent uh, 32 years with two agency plus a, a year uh, with an international agency and then some private contracting with other agencies. I never saw, I saw a lot of cases where officers screwed up. I saw a lot yeah. of cases where officers were ended up being prosecuted. I don't remember a case where I thought that officer went in there to take that action against that person with criminal intent. And likewise with the private uh, carrier. I've seen a lot of cases where good intentions started, bad results finished. Uh, the, the, the pharmacist case here in Oklahoma City that made national headlines. That's a guy that went from hero to zero. He went from a guy that was protecting himself, protecting them, those people closest to him, to committing a criminal act. So that's uh, my... Gary, yeah. I'm not familiar with that case. Can, can you give like a, a 15 second, uh, like... To the people who aren't familiar with that, I'll give it. That was the Jerome Ursuline case from about what 2010, 11. 2000, I thought it was nine. Maybe nine. But yeah, it was a pharmacist who was in working. Uh, two young men came in, attempted to rob him. He was a hundred percent justified in his response. 
He engaged them. He was using a Taurus judge for whatever that's worth. Uh, no. He ends up striking one of them in the head with one pellet from a 410 round. He had it loaded al- alternating between 45 ah. Colt and 410. One pellet entered the young man's head, traversed his brain, put him out of the fight. The second young man ran. I hate to use the term young men. They were young men. They were 14 to 16. However, they were armed robbers. And and if you watch the surveillance video, which is still available on YouTube, this is clearly, in my opinion, not their first armed robbery. But the pharmacist pursues, fires some questionable shots at one of the young men fleeing. He then returns, steps over the downed uh, armed robber's Un, most likely unconscious body retrieves a second gun, comes over and gives him five to the to the chest in a coup de gras captured on video. Wow! Uh, so this, like I say, he, this is a guy that went from hero to zero, went yeah. from a hundred percent justifiable response to to um, ultimately being in prison for the rest of his life for murder. Which is unique because that it doesn't matter what the podcast is or what. Uh what the format is, it seems like if you're from Oklahoma City, that shooting comes up. And I've traveled all over the country teaching. You know, I had a, a very small role in that that incident. It literally went from, man, pats on the back and thank God this guy survived. To, oh, wow. We have a serious, serious problem in the, man, in the matter of like 15 minutes. So it was, yeah. it was really a pretty eye-opening incident. And William April talked about it in his brief down in uh, at TACCON last year, and he kind of summed it up as he said, a Taurus judge saved his life and a, a Keltec P380 put him in prison. I was like, yeah, that's that's probably about the the most simple that you can distill that down to. You know, I'm glad I'm glad that we went down that road because uh, I think I think a lot of people, especially that aren't in our part of the world, are, aren't familiar with that case. That, um, or that, at least the nuances of it. That that case is is uh, is extremely. It's a fascinating case to me. A case of a guy who had good intentions, and everything went bad for him. Yeah. Whether that was because of the stress of the incident or just whatever he had going on, but to me, it's it's the fascinating element of it is from a guy who is a tax-paying citizen. He was a little eccentric, but was gainfully employed. He was 50-some years old, had no brushes with the law to a criminal. And that's what, as a concealed carrier, you have to understand and you have to accept that responsibility of if I'm going to carry that firearm, I have to be responsible for every action that I make, every action that I do. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, man, we've been going 35 minutes already. Let's look into the one that I'm probably the most fascinated with, and it's really shaped the way that I design classes and training, and that's the physiological effects of a shooting and training in a manner that takes into account all of those these kind of five, six, six phenomenon that occur pretty much across the board with civilians, officers. They're not exclusive to any one group of people that's involved in a critical incident. Some of them in the presentation are intense second guessing, tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, temporary loss of memory and time, and loss of motor skills. 
these things as a as a firearms instructor, your goal is to get somebody to perform subconsciously, right, Hanny? I mean, you, to be able to pre- absolutely to to shoot accurately subconsciously to make decisions based on the situation, not based on your ability to run a gun. These five things really shaped the way that I design a class and shaped the way that I teach people to shoot. So uh, let's just go into like intense second guessing. And and I've heard this one firsthand from, not from cops, but on the surface. And I mean that in, you know, immediately after the incident, they're pretty confident about what happened. It seems that sets in with law enforcement officers with training that seems to set in down the road, just in my experience in talking to people and being around other other members that have been involved in, in incidents. As they start having the second guessing coming on a month, a year, two, three, four, five years down the road. So let's talk about that one for a second. For me personally, I can I can relate from my incident. I felt each of these intensely. Wow. Uh, the second guessing started almost immediately. My, my partner and I were escorting a, a, a guy that we thought was an escapee uh, from the penitentiary. He's actually a walk away from the minimum security motels that we were trying right. back in the 70s and 80s here in Oklahoma. Turns out he had just pulled an armed robbery of a pharmacy. They were robbing pharmacies for Dilaudid. The subject stepped in front of me. My partner steps right behind him. I'm third. There's not three feet's distance from his shoulder past my partner's shoulder to my shoulder. He turns. I think he's going over the rail. What I didn't realize, he'd pulled a gun that he had. He was carrying in his waistband. He pulled and turned. My partner grabbed the gun, and they're struggling over it. I see the gun as it goes from his shoulder. My partner's goes between his shoulder because I'm looking at my partner's back. I see the gun go up from his shoulder towards his face. I don't remember drawing. I remember, I think I experienced a roll-by. Explain a roll-by really quick because a lot of people don't understand revolver terminology. For us old revolver shooters, a a (laughs) roll-by is when you're shooting a revolver double action, and as you pull the trigger, it advances the cylinder, the hammer becomes back, but before the sear breaks, you release, and then you, in my case, I started the process a second time. Would I you would you have remembered that, like, immediately after the incident? Yes. For wow. some reason, that stood out in my brain. I still can't say for certain it happened, but it's very vivid to me. Was that, that something you were trained on, though? No. We, we had, in the course of training with revolvers, there were times you would experience a roll-by. Uh, where, so, where you were starting a trigger cycle and then and the maybe the turned. target turns. Right. Right. Something like that. But did they quantify it in training as that's called a roll-by? You just rolled by that round and now you're going to pick up the next? Or I don't remember. Because the reason I ask is you're the only person I've ever sit, heard use that terminology with a revolver, and I kind of wondered... I mean, I've heard people describe that, but I've never heard it. And I, I always wondered if that was something that was trained. Okay, I'm starting a trigger cycle. 
the threat's gone away, so I let the trigger back out, and now my next round is going to flip the cylinder again to the next round. I just never heard it described, or I'd heard it described, but never summed up that way. And I've heard you say that over the years several times. I thought, I wonder if that was a technique trained in that era. So I, I don't remember it being. In my mind, I remember when it happened and remember thinking, I just did a roll-by versus a drive-by, I guess. But uh, the, the, the second guessing for me kicked in as I'm shooting from basically from, uh, uh, from uh, the one-handed low position past my partner. Of course, my muzzle is not six inches from my partner's back. As a matter of fact, he thought I was shoot. He thought he was being shot in the back as I started to uh, fire my rounds. That's funny you say that because he, he told me years later, he said, I couldn't figure out why your dad was punching me in the ribs while I was fighting with a guy with a gun. <laughs> I was shooting a four-inch three fifty-seven, a Model 19 Smith & Wesson. What troubled me almost immediately is I don't remember being aware that I was clear of my partner. We were uh, We were made to go see a department shrink. Uh, that was something that had just been instituted in 1979 at Oklahoma City. Uh, I, that, that memory, that, that visit was worth a side story by itself. But uh, I remember asking the, uh, the psychologist or expressing my concern that I didn't make sure my partner was clear. And his answer was that, Sometimes your brain processes things that you're not even really aware are being processed. That was pretty revolutionary for set for 40 years ago. Yeah. I think we're pretty, because of 20 years of battlefield and, and intense war that our country's been in, we've become more aware that people operate in that subconscious plane faster than they can consciously process the information. But that's interesting that you were, in all of that, that seemed to be a hang-up. Like, man, I wasn't sure that... Because that's like safety rule, what, number <laughs> number two or three there? Like, be sure your target and what's beyond it and Absolutely. don't point your gun at anything you don't plan on shooting or destroying, etc. And that caused me a great deal of stress. Wow. Uh, then that was probably the main thing I second-guessed myself on. But I still remember I was, I had set a record on the PPC course during the academy. Yeah. And I still remember as the shots are being fired thinking, I shot a 573 PPC in the yeah. academy and I'm missing this guy from three feet. I saw the first round and the last round striking. You know, the, the feelings of guilt, I didn't experience terribly other than expressing to my extremely religious parents that I had taken a life. Yeah. So that, that would kind of, man, that, that covers a lot of like the temporary loss of, of memory and time. You know, you say you, you saw the first shot, you didn't see the last or the, the first and the last, but there was obviously a lapse in time. Auditory exclusion. Do you remember hearing, That's, I mean, a three fifty seven Magnum at three feet. And we're on a staircase wow. of a little frame building my left shoulder is against a wall and I'm shooting a four inch three fifty seven magnum. If anybody's ever shot one without ear protection can 
can can affirm that that's an ex- annoying, extremely loud uh, report. It sounded like to me I was hearing shots coming from a mile away. It was muffled. It was very light. Hmm. Uh, I didn't experience any recoil. Um, I still remember the and when my partner began shooting. We fired a total of eight rounds. I fired five. When the guy finally turned loose of his gun, my partner turned the the bad guy's gun and shot him three times as he was as he was down or going down with uh, his stolen Charter Arms thirty eight special. I I remember almost like a just a distant gunshot. Just a very mild sound. Huh. Uh, I've also described as far as the uh, visual, to like me, tunnel vision type the tunnel thing. vision. The I remember that he went to to me almost like a silhouette type vision, and I remember it slowing down almost like it was watching an old eight millimeter movie on frame by frame. It clicked up. He's in front of me. The next click, he's slightly back. The next click, he's almost down. The final click, he's on his back. And I remember my last round hitting him in the thigh and it exploding. What I learned later was he had a bottle of Dilaudid in his pocket. And what (laughs) I saw exploding was actually this bottle of Dilaudid. That's wild that uh, you were able wow. to visually process that. It was, it was, it was on. Like I say, it was watch, like watching it in slow motion, frame by frame. Yeah, I get. What's the the? They have a technical term for that when you're in the hypervigilant state. Tachypsychia. Tachypsychia. Yes, where everything seems to go frame by frame. That's that's unreal. The the things you're able to process and see that are really inconsequential details in the grand scheme of an incident they're like in the forefront of your psyche while they're happening i remember seeing the cigarette in the guy's mouth wow i remember as as he lands on his back his foot hung on the banister i thought i had kicked his foot loose my partner said no you reached down and pulled his foot loose and he bounced to the bottom of the stair because we still had eight assholes in the, <laughs> the apartment that We'd pull him out. You mean, you mean per- potential <laughs> criminal suspects? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Potentially criminal suspects. Every one of which had done long terms in prison, multiple counts for armed robbery. One of, one of the, the, the female occupants who just died within the last two years, uh, she had done time for murdering a guy and burying him behind a gas station they thought was an Oklahoma City undercover officer. Oh wow, um, Diane! I still a remember lot, all of their names. Uh, a lot of uh, deep-rooted criminal history there. Yeah, absolutely. W- were you immediately aware that there was maybe a threat behind you in the apartment? Yes. Would you attribute that to training? Like, okay, I, this yes. this this threat is now been somewhat neutralized or dealt with. Now I have eight potential criminal suspects behind and me I was keen, and I have one round in my I revolver was keenly aware that I had one round left in my partner. I mean, in my, in my revolver. Wow. I turned to them, told them to get back. Of course they had started towards where we were. Right. Uh, 
I think that's why I pulled his foot loose to get him down out of our way. And I still remember stepping around the corner, popping the cylinder open, putting my thumb on my one live round, dumping my five empties and reloading. So which begs the question, if you could do it all over, would you have 17 rounds of nine millimeter or eight rounds of 45? Just 17 <laughs> rounds of nine millimeter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because there was no worse feeling than realizing you had one round, which was seven less than you needed. And at that time, you were probably carrying loop loaders, I presume. Yes. Individual loops. No, yes. There wasn't speed safari no. land comp we, threes. and We had trained to load two at a time, as you, you did shooting uh-huh. PPC. And I was pretty proficient, especially... When you trained with full wad cutters, loading two at a time, and then you had an actual projectile that shaped and guided your rounds into the cylinder, I got that uh, Model 19 reloaded in record time. (laughs) Gary? Had a little stimulus um, there, too. Yeah. Speed loaders were out and available and in use back then. Were they not in use? This is kind of a gun minutia kind of thing, but were they... Were they not in use by your agency then? I don't recall them being authorized until mm-hmm. uh, maybe 81, 82, somewhere around there. My shooting I've was in 79. From, I've heard the same thing from some of my mentors, that during their careers when they, there were speed loaders, they knew there were speed loaders, but they weren't allowed to carry them until, you know, some later date in their career there was and you've been in the game long enough law enforcement absolutely hates change of any kind uh no actually there's two things the way things are and change yeah (laughs) they uh we were it was expressed to us that a speed loader was a mechanical device and it was going to fail when you needed it most the same arguments that were made over semi-automatics the same arguments that are made over uh, red dot optics. Law enforcement hates change. So, man, that was a that was a deep dive into uh, the, the. Hey, Brian. Fi- yo, before we leave this deep dive, Gary, from from the moment that your brain took in, this is going badly. Something bad is happening. Like he's drawing, he's doing, he's fighting, he's. Maybe he's going over the, the railing or whatever. From from that second to the guy hitting the ground, how, how long how long would you say that took? Sub two seconds. Uh, Sub two I, seconds. In my mind, it was four or five minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. In my exactly. mind, I saw my initial thought was that the subject was going to jump over the rail and run. Yeah. So I was young and in good shape and thought, here comes the chase. I then realized the gun, as it passed from the point of his shoulder to my partner's face, my partner advised, he, he grabbed the gun and locked the cylinder. He, he managed to get both hands on the gun as the guy turned around and locked the cylinder. Uh-huh. He, he said, I fired my first round as the gun centered on his face. So he thought the guy shot him. He then just took the gun and 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 held against the wall until the guy released his grip on the gun so the, yeah. the the amount of time it would take for that firearm to pass from the point of his shoulder to his face is how long it took in my mind 
I saw it, I'm processing, I'm thinking, what's this? Oh, it's a gun. Oh, you better do something. Oh, draw. Am I going to shoot? That's where I experienced what I I thought to be a roll-by. All of these things seem like they took minutes to process. In reality, my guess from the time I saw the gun until the entire incident as far as the the gunfight portion, maybe two seconds. Wow. The uh, the interesting thing, I had a conversation with, with his partner years later, and partner was a gun guy. You know, he's kind of an old-school gun guy, you know. The old guys mostly were. Yeah, and he, he told me, he said, I knew I was going to be okay as long as that cylinder didn't turn on the bad guy's gun. And he said at one point he remembered looking the guy in the eye as he was crossing his pinkies behind the hammer of the guy's gun. And you, wow. Now we just quantified that in two, two seconds, second and a half to two seconds. And he said, I could see the, the look on the dude's face changed when he realized my gun doesn't work. He told me, he said, you know, I didn't really think it was all that much effort. He said, I, you know, I pinned the guy's gun to the wall. I crossed my pinkies behind the hammer and I knew gun's not going to go off you idiot you know and he said i really wasn't processing how bad it that, that it had digressed and then he said the next day i woke up and i couldn't hardly open my hands because i'd exerted yeah. so much force on that gun that that strained all all the all the muscular tendons and everything in his in his forearms just holding that gun by the cylinder it was funny to me that he expressed like I felt safe as long as I knew I had that cylinder and it wouldn't rotate. And when I got my pinkies behind the hammer, I knew, okay, even if the cylinder turns, he's not going to get the hammer back. And it was, you think about it later and you go, man, that sounds like a process. That sounds like a fight. And then when you quantify that and you distill it down to that happened in under three seconds, that's pretty incredible. How much, how much subconscious processing was going on. And and the other part of that is, I guess it pays to be a gun guy because if he would have grabbed it by the barrel, it would have been a different situation. But well, and I think two things played into that: training and experience. Yeah, my partner had ten years of experience, which was an old head to still be on the <laughs> on the on the streets. Uh, and we had trained in 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 those type incidents, um, and reacted as we were trained that's the big difference i think had i been a private carrier and stuck in that same situation with me and a friend without the training without the experience i think the outcome could have been very different man we're going to run long but we got plenty of time before dinner so let's see long-term effects that was the next big block and this one this one really kind of hit home with me as far as you know, having gone through critical incidents and the impact it has on your life away from work and, and even your life at work and, and in my own career, having, having incident after incident and, and seeing how that affects, you know, family, friends, relationships, your, your, your employment. And anyway, so long-term effects. And I think this is something that when I hear the, the, the bravado of, of, some people in the training industry, they, they don't, they discount. And one of the first guys that I heard that really didn't was Ernest Langdon. 
And he said, you know, we're, we're training to do this subconsciously, and this is just becoming a second nature. But keep in mind that if you deploy your handgun in a scenario, you're probably going to need to lay on a couch and talk to somebody about it for about the next 10 years. I really, from an instructor standpoint, I was like, man, that was a, a three-second statement in a three-day class that I went, man, there is a lot hanging on what he just said versus – all right, look, good. We put 10 rounds in the center of this target and then move on. And the surprising thing to me was nobody keyed in on that at all. Nobody even took a second glance at what he was saying or really processed what he was saying. So that that kind of stood out to me in that training scenario was like, hey, this guy's aware if you deploy your handgun in a self-defense situation, there's going to be a lasting effect for who knows how long and some of that like employment loss and financial burden. I know when we talked about uh, Steven Maddox, that was one of the things that almost immediately occurred after his incident was he got terminated by his employer. Right. Am I wrong? Am I right on that one? You're right. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say that that was never a concern of mine as far as the, uh, the employment Right. As a private carrier, that's something you need to be aware of. Oh, yeah. Your employer may not want to deal with the publicity of an incident. Uh, for me personally, the long-term effects are hard to define. Yeah. Uh, I've got a string of failed relationships. <laughs> Is that a result of that? Possibly. It could be contributory. Uh, well, there's I, two, two kind of cops, those that have been divorced and those that will be. Yeah. But. Well, and and the other thing is just relating this today. This is forty one. Uh, it'd be forty one years ago in two months. In two months, I feel that same stress when I relate this incident again. Wow. Uh, I still remember going before the shooting review board, and and in seventy nine we did a old school shooting review board. You stood at a podium in front of commanders. Guys that you never saw unless you were in trouble, unless you screwed up. Or at the awards banquet, Or at the awards banquet. They didn't even have awards banquet then. And I remember as I started telling it, almost feeling like I was that same extreme stressed feeling as I felt during the incident. Now, keep in mind, I went to a shooting review board six days after the shooting. Wow. Uh, back then, that was common. Uh, as a matter of fact, mine was the third fatal shooting in 10 days. And they said, hey, we're going to keep you off a little longer. We don't want this to look like a whitewash. So, uh, you know, it, it may be a week before we clear you. Then they gave me the option of filing a murder charge on me. The, the theory behind that was that you went before a judge, did a bench trial, you were found not guilty, and then uh, jeopardy attached, and they couldn't prosecute you again. So That, that is very interesting, Gary. I had never heard of that. That was commonplace. It went away not long after I started, but was commonplace. Wow. As a matter of fact, in the years previous to that, it was routine that an officer was filed on and uh, a prosecutor went before a judge with a, on a bench trial and said, hey, you shot an armed robber. The, jur- uh, the judge would say not guilty and, uh, you know, you were in the clear. Bench trial. 
You know, uh, Gary, I, I, I pride on myself. Uh, I pride myself on being like, you know, kind of a historian of law enforcement stuff and a repository of lost wisdom. And <laughs> I have never heard of that before. It's, that was common practice here in, in wow. Oklahoma City. You know, one of the benefits, one of the few benefits of being old is I came on at a very formative time in law enforcement in a time when change was coming about. Our chief was stressing the importance of education. And before that was, hey, can you shoot? Can you run? Can you fight? Are yeah. you strong? Can you fight? That was, you know, that was it. So seeing this evolution over the last 40 years has been fascinating, but it's also been very rewarding to be a, to be a small component of that evolutionary process. Yeah. The, uh, the bench trial, I can remember reading newspaper clippings from that era and seeing, you know, officers charged with murder. And then in this fine print found not guilty at bench trial by judge. So-and-so at this, you know, and completely cleared of all wrongdoing in the actions. And then a brief description of the, of the incident. When you talk about media is a snippet, that that was one of the interesting things to me is to go back through some of those old albums you had with newspaper clippings and see the big bold headline of you know slain suspect wrong man right was the first headline I saw because the guy we shot wasn't the guy we were sent to pick up oh wow slain slain suspect wrong man and I can still tell you that when they offered to file murder charge on me I think my knees buckled. I almost went down. I'm 22 years old, and they said, do you want us to file murder charge on you? It was like, are you asking that sarcastically? Or? Yeah, it, was, it was overwhelming. You know, I'm not thinking about the the legal strategies there. It was a bullshit legal strategy anyway, because we all know if there's wrongdoing there, the feds step in and, 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 and prosecute you anyway. So... If you were, let's say you were 35 years old and making your second trip through patrol and they said, okay, you got any shooting We're you want to do a bench trial? What would you, would that have had the same effect as it would have on a 22 year old? I can only assume no. And I base that partly on my partner was 34 years old wow. at the time. He was a 10 year plus veteran had been in a couple scrapes before, a couple shooting incidents. I don't think any of them were fatal. Right. He laughed at it all. He, I can tell you stories that probably aren't appropriate for the air, but how the old guys dealt with that kind of stress was a little different than the way we were trained. Yeah. But when I still remember when I showed up for the shooting review board, Chief Tom Hagee. Tom was an innovator was the first chief to really push education. He walks in, we're sitting there uh, waiting to go before our shooting review board. And he walks into the chief's office and says, what are you guys doing here? And I said, well, we're, we're to appear before the shooting review board, sir. He said, well, did you bring your shields? Well, I didn't know what he was referring. Brian Smythe looked and said, no, you're going to have to pay me overtime to go get mine. And I was kind of crass response to the chief. Well, the chief laughed. I didn't even get the joke. I was too stupid to to realize he was saying they may terminate you at the end of this shooting review board. 
uh, not stupid, maybe just ignorant to the the humor that was ensuing. But <laughs> yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that that is uh, that that is like the epitome of of um, y- y- uh, 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 that that, that uh, famous quote that the, the past is a different country; they do things differently there. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, family, spouse, and kids. This is long term effects. We're only going to get through a couple of them here because we're we're running pretty long, but. We started a little early, so why not? Family, spouse, and kids. What's funny is uh, talking about this, I remember the first time becoming aware that you had been in a shooting when I was about seven years old. I remember sitting in the gun shop with you know your your partner and him telling me, yeah, your dad saved my life, and he was just a baby. You know, and he goes, he was a baby, and you were in his typical, you know, irreverent swagger, but and I remember like the profound effect it had on me immediately as I was like, Whoa, that's even at seven years old, like, man, that's really heavy. And I can remember asking my mom and some other people about it. And they're, it was kind of like, well, we just don't talk about that. And you know, at the time that was kind of like how we dealt with stuff was, well, we just, it happened, but we just don't talk about that time. It's better to just let that lay. And then as we look back in history, we go, man, that really had some formative stuff. And, and I can remember being in, you know, being in grade school and somebody that was keen to that incident recognized my last name and, and asked me is, you know, is, is Gary your dad? And I said, yeah, well, is he okay? Because he shot somebody. And I'm like, dude, I'm in the third freaking grade, like lay off, you know? And <laughs> And this guy was, you know, he was a teacher, but he had, he had been kind of a hanger on around a lot of law enforcement. And it was really interesting. I like, I look back at it now and I go, man, that had a real profound effect on me as a kid to, to know that just to know that information. And then at seven years old, looking back going, well, why didn't I know that till now? (laughs) You know, which was, was odd, but we never, you know, you never quantify that that minor two and a half, two seconds there in time is going to have a ripple effect across generations of time. And you were 23 days old, 23 days. Right. I mean, not like you were going to have a conversation then, but when the incident occurred and I still remember uh, talking about the stress, right? How, they came in and told us that, hey, the news media is already out here. It's going to be on the news shortly. It right. happened right at 6 p.m. Uh, and they said, you might notify all your family. Well, I had to call your mom and say, look, hey, I'm okay, but you're going to see on the news here in a minute oh. about this incident where somebody lost their life. And the only thing I can tell you right now is everybody. The good guys are the good okay. The good guys are okay. Then secondary to that is old friends from school, from church or whatever. Randy Bray was mm-hmm. a, one of my closest friends in my younger years. You, you run into them and go, hey, hero, how's it feel to be a hero? Well, you know, I'm, it just it made me extremely uncomfortable. Then your, uh, your coworkers. You come back to work and they're coming up and high five and you're patting you on the back. Nothing malicious. They were they were celebrating the fact that the good guys won. Right. But I still remember one of the guys telling me, "Well, at least now you know you can do it." And my thought was, 
I didn't know then I could do it, and I damn sure don't know now I could do it. Right. Uh, I was very thankful that the situation developed so quick that my responses were almost automatic responses based on training. Uh, Not much experience, but a lot of training. What's what's, uh, one of the things I see that's really changed in the law enforcement realm is the peer support groups and stuff like that, that are a little more they they handle those incidents with a little more kid glove type response than maybe you know the crass lineup room slap you on the back hey great job or whatever it's a little more i think pointed into the the whole emotional stress side and then the flip side of that is if you're a civilian in a shooting you're you're a concealed carrier what support structure are you going to have that that's something that's always bothered me, especially when I hear, you know, the atypical gun range bravado of, well, you know, if this person came in my house, I'm like, buddy, one trigger pull and you could lose your job, your livelihood, your family, and everybody you've ever known that you thought was your friend could potentially distance themselves from you. Where's your support system? And, uh, and that's one of the things I'll give kudos to ccw safe about is is in their post shooting i would call it like post incident care almost they have a protocol for hey we'll we'll set you up with with a shrink and we'll 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 help you on the back side of the incident not just in the civil and 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 criminal side but there's there's some structure in place there of what was it like They'll provide you with a counselor and and post incident post incident care. I mean, it's post trauma care is what it is. But we, we have an immediate peer support type response. Then uh, the uh, as part of a member, uh, one of the member benefits is uh, a certain number of visits to uh, right. for psychological counseling. You know, I it, it I, I can't tell you how how impressed I am that 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 program takes that into account because because I think not only is it not really discussed but it's not it's just it's not discussed to the point that nobody even knows to make arrangements right mm-hmm. so it's like people now have it in their head like oh you know I, maybe I should have an attorney or maybe I should have some kind of legal coverage or I should whatever I, I, I don't know of any other organization that caters to non-law enforcement when it comes to deadly force that has thought of and well, I can I can I, attribute that to like <laughs> two of the three I, I, founders I, I, have been in critical incidents like that. It's the only reason That's, I've got I a job is the CEO was involved in a uh, double fatality police shooting in 1997, and I was one of the responding officers. Well, that's probably not the only reason. One of the responding (laughs) investigators. But that's, uh, Hanny, you touched on it. What we have tried to do, I say we, what the founders uh, tried to do, and I think they've done a pretty good job of it, is they modeled after the police union. We want to give yeah. our members the same thing that that a law enforcement officer in the line of duty would would receive the same type support, the same type defense. I mean, we provide a mechanism for mounting the same defense that somebody of means would would have. Then, as an yeah. additional benefit, is the peer support. 
the counseling, the things that we know are important versus a company that has put together and say, hey, we can make money selling this product with and no you know what? baseline experience. The people who hopefully in their multitude who will be who, who will hear this. I, I think that, you know, my, my affiliation with CCW Safe is, is, is knowing a lot of the people that are involved. I, I don't have any other affiliation to it. They can think that this is a plug and you know what? Hell with it. It is a plug because I, I can't, I can't stress to people who will be listening to this that, you know, there, there will be resources. There are resources that you're going to need that you don't even know you may need. Yeah, absolutely. Because That's... we're we're you know we tend to censor on the on the sexy shit, uh, gear, guns, holsters. Um, how many lumens is your friggin' flashlight? <laughs> and it's like you know at the at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many lumens your flashlight are. Do you have a flashlight? Good. It, but do you have this and that and that and that that can come into play when the smoke clears? Number one. And two, you don't even know what you're going to need. Um, no one knows what you're going to need. Right. Only but, those that have but, been there. But you guys have thought of a lot of it. Yeah, and that's it's interesting having conversations with the founders, you know, in passing or SHOT Show or, you know, the police week with them or whatever, and sitting with the founders individually, and you start breaking down why they modeled it the way they did and all the resources we have as police officers was – the ability to provide something like that to the, the the civilian carrier is similar in nature to what you would have as a as a police officer, and I can tell you, even as a even as a police officer to this day, the way that we have post incident, what would you call it, post incident debriefs and things like that, has completely changed. It's ever evolving, and it has evolved up until just the last few months. I mean, it's, it's still in a constant state of, of, of evolution with, you know, the interview processes and, and peer support and the path of peer support. You know, it's, it's funny when I got on, I heard earlier, I heard you say I, I hired on in a transitional period or a real period of growth in law enforcement. And I think all of us, as we look back in our career, you start to see that, that it's an ever evolving thing there's periods where there's more evolution than others. But when I hired on it, it was even, you know, you got into an incident and it wasn't until your, <laughs> it wasn't until the third time some officer picked you up off the curb drunk that they went, maybe you got a problem. Maybe we need to go talk to somebody about this, this incident that happened over here, or I'm not putting specifics on anybody. That was just a wild, uh, a wild hypothetical, no, hypothetical. Or, or, you know, a guy that, that goes through three divorces in 12 months and you go, there's something wrong. Let's, and now we, we've kind of gone pro on the proactive side of it. And it's not as much of a, uh, Oh, it doesn't seem to show as like a sign of weakness. If you go, man, I'm really having some issues with this shooting. And I think our, our leadership and administrations as they've evolved, they've become keenly aware that, that that's a, that's a huge portion that the, the shooting incident may, the aftermath of that may stretch over six months, but for the individual, it may be, it, it can shape a lifetime. So it's interesting for me to see that transition just, just from 2002 until now, the same thing could be said for the military. When I, when I joined the army, you know, we still had Vietnam vets and nobody was talking about post-traumatic stress. 
there was just a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of libation that went on amongst those fellas as they were starting to retire. But but anyway, yeah, we've gone down some deep rabbit holes, and uh, as Hanny says, you can go ahead and say the phrase. I'll mess it up. Oh. <laughs> You're only an expert in one thing. Oh yes, yes. Uh, 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 a couple of weeks ago, I told Brian that uh, the only thing I'm a certified subject matter expert on is rabbit holes. I'm the yeah. best at going down them. <laughs> I uh, I've been guilty of that myself in the past. Well, I think this one. I think we need to we need to wrap this one up because uh, there is there's potentially two large ribeyes with our name on it. And so uh, we 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 do have a bit of an appointment. So. <laughs> So, as do I. As do you, as we discussed last night. So, Hanny, I'll go ahead and uh, sign you out, and then I'm going to wind this wind this whole operation down here. But uh, appreciate both of you. Had got to have one in the studio and one uh, one remote. But uh, hopefully, in the future, we'll get to have you up here, and you can sit in the office, and the three of us can decompress or or go down another series of rabbit holes, right? Absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon, Haney. See you soon, Haney. Episode four, The Aftermath, brought to you by the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. We will see you soon. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC.